0: Good morning, good evening. Thank you for watching Redeemer Live. So today we start a series, uh, and it's going to run through the month of October, and the series is on revival. I I hope this series intrigues you. I hope it excites you. I read one pastor this week who said he believes there's nothing that is needed more in the entire Western world than revival. And I think you're going to see why in this series. But before I get to that, you you just heard about our regathering. And so I just want to say a little bit more about that now. Um, I said when, when I preached on Titus 3.1 back in March that we're to obey the government. But Christians are never to obey the government unconditionally. Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 6, Acts 4 and 5 all make that abundantly clear. Only God gets unconditional obedience as uh, because unconditional obedience has a name and that name is worship. So we should never obey the government when it takes the place of God and, and demands the kind of absolute authority that only belongs to God. So the $64,000 question is, has Governor Ducey been doing that to us? I'm not talking about other states like California. I'm talking about Arizona. Has Governor Ducey commanded what God forbids or forbidden what God commands? I don't think any reasonable person would say that he has at this point in the past five months. If he had, we would obey God rather than man. The government asked all of us to behave differently so the most vulnerable among us won't die. So for families, that means one thing, but for a church of a thousand plus people, that means something totally different. That meant not meeting. So we stopped gathering to be good citizens, to love our neighbors, which Titus 3.1 commands us to do, and we, we did it out of love for all of you. We decided a handful of people disagreeing with us was was far better than doing funerals. Which was how things were presented early on in the pandemic. I have pastor friends across the country who did funerals and are going to do more funerals because of this. And, and we were saying, uh, we don't want that for any of you. So we can't thank you enough for your trust and your support during these five long months of online meetings. Most of you have been consistent examples of, a, of, a, of Hebrews 13, 17. And we can't thank you enough for that. We are, we are truly blessed. To be your pastors. It is unbelievable how kind and supportive you are. I believe the gospel has spread around the world faster than the virus because no virus can stop the church from helping people know, love, and serve Jesus. Now, having said all that, the time has come again for us to regather. And so that's what we're going to do. And there'll be three phases to our gather, regathering. We're, we're in it right now. Phase one. Online services, no kids ministry, phase two, starting next week, as you heard, we will gather in person Saturday at five, Sunday, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Online will continue indefinitely. We're never going to stop doing that. Always Saturday at five, Sunday at nine. During phase two, there will be no in-person kids ministry, no in-person student ministry, no in-person 55 plus ministry students, and 55 plus will continue online for now. Our kids can sit with you in the service if you want, and by offering an identical Sunday and Saturday service, one parent could come on Saturday, the other on Sunday if you wanna do that. Phase three, which will start in the fall, and notice that's vague, that's on purpose. In the fall, we will have in-person and online services. We'll have live kids ministry, live student ministry, live 55 plus ministry. Those dates are fluid at this point as we're daily assessing what's best for each ministry. Labor Day is what we're hoping for, especially for growth groups, and so I'll keep you posted. Like you, I cannot wait until we are fully back to everything we had going on before the pandemic. In the meantime... If you're comfortable with it, I would recommend, if you're like, I'm not sure I want to gather, regather with the church yet, I I would encourage you, if you're able and and you want to be with other people, do things like watch parties. We're on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning. You you meet with friends or you you meet with your growth group for fellowship. Have breakfast, uh, have a barbecue, uh, watch the sermons together, discuss the growth questions together watch the tuesday or the wednesday or the thursday sermons with other people do the one another's during this time that it takes a specific call or an email or a text to kind of get that started but once that gets started that it is critical especially if you're saying, I'm not sure I want to be in a, in a large group gathering. I, I'd love maybe 10 or less. That, that's fine. I'm comfortable with that. Then, then great. Do something like that. Be around other Christians. Let other Christians be around you to care for you and talk to you and, and do the one another's. Now, when it comes to our in-person services, let me just, let me just remind you of some things, some, some guidelines for those. Starting next week, one, we're going to trust you not to come if you're sick not to come if you've been sick in the last two weeks and not to come if someone in your home has been sick. We're also gonna trust you to, to to make the best decision for you if you're over 65 in a high-risk category or have preexisting conditions. We're also gonna trust you to spread out as much as you feel comfortable in the services that you attend. We've taken a third of our chairs out of this room. We've created spaces behind the stage, to my left, in the breezeway, in the kids' ministry, all so you can spread out, and in those areas, watch the service. We'll leave wearing a mask up to you. If you don't wear one, we'll expect you to love those who do. If you do wear one, we'll expect you to love those who don't. You have the freedom to live according to your conscience on this. Romans 14, regardless of our our culture of shame, Let's make sure that we are respecting each other's Christian freedom on this. Five, we will leave it up to you as to if you're going to sing or how you're going to greet people. We should have love and respect for each other, like I said. So the staff's not going to police hugs or handshakes or fist bumps or conversations. Church just isn't church without singing and interacting with people that we meet and people that we know and love. Also, sorry, no donuts, no drinks until we can figure out how to do that with minimal contamination. And we're all comfortable with that again. And and seventh, we will do our best to keep the place clean and disinfected, especially in the high traffic areas on our campus. Now, this plan to regather gives each of us a lot of responsibility, it puts a lot of responsibility in your hands. And you're gonna be able to choose to do what, what you think is God's will for you, your family, and all the people that you you would interact with here. And again, if you're thinking, John, honestly, not sure if I'm going to see you for a while. Uh, maybe not uh, until 2021. Maybe not until there's a vaccine. Listen, that's okay. We love you. We're going to keep broadcasting online. Just, just help us out maybe by checking in every once in a while. Email me, one of the other pastors saying, hey, we're doing all right. I know we're reaching out to members especially to see how they're doing. But, but you can do that back just to let us know how you're doing. Now, grab your Bibles and open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Long commercial, now let's get into the text. 2 Timothy chapter 3, that's page 1099. If you have one of the Bibles that we give away here at the church, drop down to verse 12. 2 Timothy 3.12. And if you are able, wherever you are, please stand for the reading of God's word. 2 Timothy 3.12. This is God's word for us today. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will grow from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have heard and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Fulfill your ministry. And as God's word, wherever you are, you may be seated. And as you are, join me in prayer. God, this is one of the most significant passages for pastoral ministry. It is one of the most significant passages for what the Bible is and what the Bible can do in a person's life. And that's gonna be our focus this morning. So I pray that these truths will deeply impact us, that that our lives will change, that our habits will change as a result of a message like this. That will not be because of the eloquence of the preacher. That will be because of the power of your spirit working through the clarity of your word. So please give each of us, here, each of us watching, give us that, I pray. Help us, please, to understand And apply this text as we stand in awe of the Savior that this word is about. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So my family and I just got back from vacation. And uh, while we're on vacation, one of the things my family likes to do is uh, to make puzzles. Really, my wife Katie likes to do puzzles. And she's kind of passed that on to our children. So a couple of weeks ago, Colin and I were working on a puzzle. The biggest one he's ever done, I think it was two or 300 pieces. And when we got to the end, there was one piece missing. So we looked on the table. We looked under the table. We looked around the table. We couldn't find it anywhere. We, we weren't desperately looking for it or anything, but, but we wanted to find it. Something was missing. Something was incomplete. Something wasn't right. It was off. And I wonder if the same thing is true for your Christian life. You've been putting it together with Bible reading and church attendance and being nice and not doing anything really bad, and yet something seems incomplete. Maybe something seems missing or, or off. Oh, you know you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You you know you've been made alive, born again. You you know you're you're not the same that you used to be. You know your sins are forgiven. You know you're adopted into the family of God. You know all of that is true. You know you're assured of heaven and a whole lot more, and yet you know there's something more, something you want, something something you don't have, something you maybe you used to have, but you don't have any more. Maybe something you know you should want more than you do right now. You can hear it in verses like like, like like, Psalm 63. Oh Lord, oh Lord, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. You can hear in those words something that, that maybe doesn't match your soul. Listen to Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams of water, so pants my soul for you. Oh God, my my soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? To God's people, the Jews, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, "You, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And we hear verses like that and we go, wait a minute. Is my passion, is my affection, is my desire, my seeking to know God like, like, like what we see described, described there? See, I, I don't want you to get used to and, and settle into having your doctrine all down and having some principles for Christian living, but not have a desire to be close to the living God. So what's it called when a child of God recognizes that his commitment to Jesus has become cold or routine or stale or dry or powerless or joyless? What is it when when the desires he, he knows he should have and the, the seeking that he knows he should do for God just, just isn't there? What's it called when a child of God doesn't see himself in the pages about seeking and thirsting and panting and, and desiring for God? What is it called when a child of God sees this and then turns from the decline and and, and his appetite for God is refreshed and new life, new vitality, new zeal comes into his Christian life. Whether that happens to one person or it happens to a church or a whole community of people, the word for that in the Bible is revival. Revival is the turning of God's people away from sin, away from self, away from apathy. And, and he renews in them a, a deeper commitment to the truth, a deeper commitment to him, and a deeper commitment to his word and obedience. Psalm 69 32, you who seek God, there's this seeking of God, let your hearts revive. That's what I want for us. Psalm 85 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? That if there's no, that, that we, we, can, we, can, we can get the answer right on a test. God is wonderful. God is good. God, I love God. But do we, where does the rejoicing in him come from? It can come from if, we, if, if a person has grown stale, if a Christian has grown cold, it comes from him reviving us. It's one thing to know about God. It is another thing to rejoice in him. I want you to know God, not just in salvation, but I I want you to know him. I want you to be close to him. I want you to pray without ceasing me because you're wrapped up in a constant conversation with him. I don't want Redeemer to be a church that's that's all about truth, sound doctrine, and expository preaching, and a high view of God, but there's a, a frozenness, a routineness, not a, a lively, dynamic, real, heartfelt, dare I say, emotional, passionate love for God. The church of Jesus Christ in the West, it seems to me, is like a sick man walking amongst the dead in this world. And what we need is not influence, It's not programs, it's not fads, it's not techniques, it's not celebrities, it's not respectability. What we need is God. We need God to visit us, we need God to renew us, we need God to ignite in us a passion for him that puts everything else in our lives far below him and his will. So I wanna talk to you over the next couple months about revival, I I want you to understand what revival is and what revival isn't. I want you to understand where revival comes from, how it comes into a person's life and what it looks like when it does. So we're gonna look at revival from four angles over the next couple months. We're gonna look at revival from the angle of the Word of God. We're gonna look at revival from the angle of the Spirit of God. We're gonna look at revival from the angle of the man of God, the preacher. And we're going to look at specific revivals in the Old Testament. And why are we doing this? So that if you're thirsty for God, you'll drink. So if you're hungry for him, you'll feast on him. So that your desires for food or money or appreciation or health or comfort or security or leisure or anything else will be nothing compared to your desire and your love for God. We start to look at revival today. By looking at the word of God. And my point is going to be this. There is no genuine revival without the word of God. We're going to see this over and over again throughout this series. So I have one point today and it's this point. Number one, admit you need the Bible for revival. That's the the big idea of this passage today. Admit you need the Bible for revival. We live in a day when most people who call themselves Christians don't believe the Bible and many who say they do may not not really mean it because it plays just a very minor role in their lives. Its influence on their daily lives is like a backup quarterback when the starter is the news or social media or some political commentator or some intellectual guru that that they connect with. People who are Christians may forget about the Bible or they may like the Bible. They may read the Bible. They may study the Bible. They may even demand that their church preach the Bible. But even then, for most, you'd never know from their lives that they actually need the Bible. And this could be why so many feel dry, why so many feel cold, why so many feel distant from God, that their their, their, their love for God needs revival because they've because they, they've, they, they, for whatever reason, they've distanced themselves from the channel of that revival, which is the Bible. I've said it dozens of times since we relaunched Redeemer five years ago. I've said we are Redeemer Bible Church. Bible is in the center of our name because we want it to be in the center of everything we do as a church. And the reason I say this is because of what the Bible is and because of what the, God uses the Bible to do in people's lives. I know of no better text that explains our need for the Bible and one we're going to look at today. So you're there in Second Timothy chapter 3, drop down to verse 14. Paul's making sure Timothy knows the one thing he needs for life and ministry, the one thing he needs to be a good pastor, the one thing he needs so that the people in his church will know, love, and serve Jesus. And that's the one thing necessary for revival. Verse 14, as for you unlike what's going on in the world, unlike what's going on with the imposters, the deceivers, the evil. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy, the culture is not going to be friendly to you It's not going to be friendly to your message. In fact, it's going to be just the opposite as time goes by. And it's only going to get worse and worse. Persecution on the outside of the church. False teachers threatening the inside of the church. So what's a young pastor to do? What should his focus be? What should he he give his attention to? What What does he need to make him a good pastor for the people that God gave him? Paul's answer, Timothy, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. What you've been exposed to, verse 15, from childhood up to the present. What is it that he's known since he was five years old? Is, that's when Jewish parents, like a mom and a, or a grandma, would have, would have started teaching Timothy. What, what is it? You can see there, verse 15, he's known the sacred writings. In context, the Old Testament, the First Testament, the Jewish Bible. These writings, notice, are sacred. That word's translated elsewhere, holy. These writings are holy because they're different, they're they're separate, they're unique, and they're unique compared to all other books. Why? What makes them different? What what makes them special? Paul tells us in the next verse, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. The NASB reads, all scripture is inspired by God. The NIV says, all scripture is God-breathed. The message puts it this way, every part of scripture is God-breathed. So you've got these words, breathed breathe out by God, inspired, God breathed. What is Paul saying? What is he getting at? What is he saying to Timothy? I think he's saying this, all scripture, every part, every section, every paragraph, every sentence, every word is breathed out by God. All scripture, every text, every chapter, every book is holy. It's sacred because it is exhaled by God himself. That's what this verse says. But what does that mean? What what is Paul saying about scripture with this, this one word that's translated by four words in the ESB, breathed out by God, which is a word that Paul likely made up? The first thing we can say is that this word is a metaphor. Why? Because God doesn't breathe. God doesn't have lungs that fill up with air and then empty when he exhales, Now, if it's a metaphor, it's a comparison. So the question is, what is being compared? And I think the answer is Paul's comparing our speech to God's speech. Just like I'm speaking now, every time I I have to inhale a little bit, and then as I'm speaking, I'm, I'm exhaling at the same time. We breathe our words out of our mouths. So when God breathed out Scripture, what was produced was nothing less than his very words. In other words, Paul is teaching the divine origin of scripture. Though he used human authors to put pen to parchment, the ultimate source of scripture is God. Though written by some 40 authors in three languages on three continents over the span of some 1600 years, the Bible is the word of God, meaning it is the the word from God, as if God wrote it himself. In fact, there are 680 claims to God speaking in the first five books of the Old Testament, there are 195 claims to God speaking in the poetic books, 418 in the historic book books, and 1307 claims to divine speech in the prophets. The words "scripture" and "God said" are even used interchangeably in the Bible. You can later compare Galatians 3:8 to Genesis 12:3. What's the point? The point is this. What the Bible says, what God says. This is Jeremiah's view, Jeremiah 1, nine. God speaking. Behold, I've put my words into your mouth. This is Luke's view, Luke one seventy. God, quote, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. This is the view of the person who wrote the book of Hebrews one. 1 Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke using the prophets as instruments. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. This is Peter's view as well. 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of God. Its origin is not in the desires of men, but men spoke from God. And finally, this was Jesus' view. Matthew 4.4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, the real Bible scholars in the room know that the the goal in preaching is to say what the author said. and, And the author, Paul, when he used the word Scripture here in verse 16, many would argue he just had the Old Testament in mind. That's what sacred writings in verse 15 mean. But I want to show you something. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And look at verse 18. 1 Timothy 5, 18. For the Scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. There are two quotes there from Scripture. The first quote is from Deuteronomy. The second quote you see in your margin where that's from, the second quote is from Luke's Gospel. So Paul calls Luke's Gospel Scripture. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Here you have Peter. Well, I don't want to give it away, but I was just about to say, here's here's Peter describing Paul's writings with a very specific, important word. Look at 2 Peter 3.15. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Isn't that helpful that Peter couldn't understand some of Paul's writings? That's helpful. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other what? The other scriptures. Here is Peter affirming that Paul's writings are scriptures. So what's the point? New Testament authors quoted from other New Testament authors and considered them equal with the Old Testament because, they, because what they wrote belonged to this larger category called Scripture. In other words, there is an awareness by the early Christians that additions were being made to this special category of inspired writings called Scripture. So what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 about Scripture applies to the New Testament as well. So what Scripture says, God says... When the Bible speaks, God speaks. To read the Bible is to read God's speech. And you've seen the meme, right? If you want to hear God speak to you, read the Bible out loud. Why? Because all scripture is breathed out by God, making God the source of every single word according to Jesus. So point number one, admit you need the Bible for revival because without the Bible, you have no message from God. Without the Bible, you have no message from God. Without it, we're all floating in a sea of human opinion with no compass, no anchor, tossed around by all the bloviating, being belched out by our cultural influencers. In the Bible, you don't have the musings of religious men. You don't have their best thoughts and ideas about God and man and the afterlife and all of that. Verse 16, it doesn't say the writers were inspired. Like Paul had an idea and he wrote Romans It doesn't say the readers are inspired, like you read something in the Bible and you're inspired to do something you normally wouldn't have done. It says the Bible, the scriptures are inspired. Meaning on every page, what you have is a message from God, which makes it holy, unique. Meaning it's the only message from God on this planet. In other words, there's no other message, living or dead, written or spoken, whose source is God. God. Every person and book and so-called prophet will all shut their mouth someday in the face of the word of God. It's only about the Bible that we can say what it says, God says. This is one of the reasons why Christians are called exclusive and narrow-minded because we take the Bible at its word when it says God spoke here and directed human authors to create books that are holy, sacred, different because only in the Bible do we have the word of God. You might be thinking every religion claims that. Preacher. Jews in the Old Testament. Muslims in the Quran. Mormons in their books. Hindus in the Upanishads. Course in Miracles. Conversations with God. On and on and on and on. How do you know? How can you be sure? Two answers for that quickly. First, there's no higher standard to appeal to than God. So when he speaks, His words carry his authority, and if the Bible has God's authority, then it judges us. We don't stand in judgment above the Bible because we can't judge God. In other words, what God does is he he allows us to understand that this is his word. He allows us to conclude that the Bible is his word by the magnificence of its content, by the change it produces in us, by the miracle of grace when he opens our eyes to that fact. And second... We don't see Jesus say in the New Testament, hey, believe me, because I said so. What Jesus does is he gives evidence. You can see the daily word that I did on John 5. He gives evidence. He says, points to the scriptures. He points to John the Baptist. He points to his miracles. So there's evidence from things like prophecy and archeology span that point anyone with an open mind to the only conclusion that explains all the facts. The Bible is the word of God. For more on this, you can find a sermon on our website called uh, Why You Should Trust the Bible. In it, I, I try to give just a mountain of evidence to show that the Bible is God's Word. The Bible alone is the Holy Bible, because only in its pages do you have books and letters whose ultimate author is God. This means the Bible is of supreme value. This means only God Himself is more valuable more special, more wonderful than the Bible. It is our greatest treasure on earth. Uh, Psalm 1910, more to be desired than gold. Our greatest resource, our greatest counselor, because it alone is the word of God. This is why we teach the Bible here. This is why we want the Bible to be the center of what we do here every time that we meet. If what we say about the Bible in our doctoral statement is true, that God is its source, then we better treat it as such. Listen, it's not me, it's not the music, it's not the people that should make you want to be here every week. It is exposure to the precious word of God himself that should get us here. And when you do, when you expose yourself to the cause, the instrument God uses to revive his people, when when you expose yourself to that, you put yourself in the path of being revived. Revived. There is no true renewal, no true refreshing. There's no revival without and apart from the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible. And if there's gonna be any revival at all, it's going to come from God. And when he brings it, when he brings it to a person, a church or a community, he does it by his word. You see this not only in the Bible being the word of God, but notice in the text what the Bible produces. It produces two results that Paul describes in verse 15. Go back to verse 15 again. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, From childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation. So what is the Bible able to do? The Bible is able to, verse 15, make us wise for salvation. The word able there in verse 15 speaks to an an innate ability, a power in the Bible itself. It It is no dead book. I hear people you know, say, you know, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. The Bible is the dead book and we've, we've got the spirit. No, this book is alive, it's living and active. It is, it is able to make you wise. It is the power to make you wise. I remember a pastor, a bunch of friends of mine in college used to listen to joking about people saying the Bible says or the Bible teaches like, like the Bible is a person. No, God teaches, not the Bible, chuckle, chuckle. I didn't know why that bothered me, but that stuck with me. It stayed in the back of my mind, and then I read Romans 4.3, Romans 9.17, Romans 10.11, Romans 11.2, 11, Galatians 4.30, 1 Timothy 5.18, and James 2.23, which all say, Scripture says. Scripture teaches. This book speaks, it instructs, it teaches. And specifically for this point, in the Bible it tells you about the person, Jesus. the the person that you need to know and become convinced about and commit your life to and stake your life and death on in order to be saved. So point number two, admit you need the Bible for revival because without the Bible, you have no eternal life. Without the Bible, you have no eternal life. God in his kindness gave us the Bible to be earth's only source for saving truth. This is what Paul taught, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is what James taught, speaking about God, he says, James 1:18, "Of His will, it is God's will. of His will, He brought us forth, He gave us new life, He birthed us again by the word of truth." James: 121, He says, "Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with weakness the implanted word which is able to save your souls." This is also what Peter taught, 1 Peter one you You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, that seed, that life cannot die. And that, 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 that happened through the living and abiding word of God. So from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible reveals the existence, the holiness, the justice, the perfection, the goodness, and the mercy of God. It reveals God's standard for relationship with him, which is flawless obedience to every rule, every law, every commandment that he ever gave. It reveals the savior, Jesus, his life, his death, his victorious resurrection, a savior that we need because we didn't keep any of those rules. It reveals the meaning of all of that, that that he would live as your substitute, that he would die as your substitute, receiving the wrath that you deserve that we deserve for our sins. The Bible reveals our, our desperate need for grace, our desperate need for mercy and forgiveness. And it reveals how you can experience that by, by turning from your sin, by turning from being your own God and, and surrendering to Jesus, trusting in Him, no longer trusting yourself to be saved. Look back at 2 Timothy 3:15 says so the scriptures make us wise for salvation. It can teach us the truth that we need to be saved. But we're saved according to verse 15, notice, through faith in Christ Jesus. Some of you need this effect of the Bible in your life like you need air. Because without this specific work of God through his word, you will not experience eternal life. You need this desperately, and if you're here, you're watching, and you're like, I, I really, I really need to talk to somebody about this because I don't, I don't, I don't sense the life of God in me. I don't, I don't sense a change. I don't, I don't sense that I'm a new creation. I don't sense like I, I just that, like like I just read that that you've been born again. Then you can email me. You can come to the church next week. Talk to me. You, you, you need to do something. You need to talk to somebody. You need to talk to a Christian that you know. Because there's nothing more important than this work of God through the scriptures to make you wise for salvation. Without the Bible, there's no eternal life. Now look at, look at verse 16. Here's the second result on the Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What else does God use the Bible to do? The Bible thoroughly equips us to do the good that God wants us to do. The Bible is not given to satisfy our curiosity, to inspire our emotions, to encourage our pride and our knowledge, to give us something to do with our spare time. The Bible exists for two great reasons, to, to save people and to grow saved people, to tell people about a Jesus who saves and to make saved people more like Jesus until we see him face to face. This was David's view. Psalm 19 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We want to grow in the knowledge of God. That's God's word. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Bible fixes our thinking, it fixes our, our feeling, it fixes our desiring, it fixes our acting. It orients our entire being in the direction of God after we're saved. This is Paul's view. Acts 20:32, "I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able, which has the power to build you up, to grow you and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." Peter taught this, 1 Peter 2.2. Two. Costi preached on this a couple weeks ago, right? Like newborn infants long for the pure milk, pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. We've all seen how infants long for milk and, and boy, do they long for it. When we long for the Bible, which tells us about God, when we, when we long for it, when we desire it, we, we grow, we mature, we progress in the salvation that we already have. So point number three admit you need the Bible for revival because without the Bible you have no spiritual growth. Without the Bible, you have no spiritual growth. This is why I said earlier. Some of the some of us we may not need the Bible like we need air because we're saved. We're not gonna die, but we, we need the Bible like we need food or money. If it's work, if this if this work of God through his word is gonna, it's gonna go on in our lives, if it's gonna if it's gonna go on here. Well, let me put it this way: what happens if this work of God in our lives has become inconsistent? It's hit or miss. It's if that if that happens, then then we'll be poor, disadvantaged, impoverished, malnourished in our growth. Notice it says that all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. It gives us a benefit, it gives us a blessing. And that blessing is it, it grows us, it changes us. Notice the rest of verse 16. It, it, it benefits us by, by what it does in us, what it does to us. Because it comes from God, Timothy was to trust the scriptures to equip him to do his work as a pastor, to use it to meet the needs of God's people. And how does scripture do this? Look at the text. It benefits us in a world of error by teaching us truth, to shape and inform every area where God's people need instruction to grow. Therefore, Timothy is to use the scriptures as the source of his instruction as the primary influencer of of everything he says and does with God's people. Next, look at the text. The Bible benefits us by convicting us when we believe something or we're doing something that's not pleasing to God. It, It makes us aware of our sin. Third, the Bible benefits us by correcting us, showing us how to get back on track where we went wrong in our thinking, our acting. God uses it to pick us up when we've fallen down morally or or intellectually, spiritually. He uses his word to put us on the road to recovery, whether our error is in what we believe or in how we're living our lives. And then finally, the Bible benefits us by training us, equipping us in how to keep walking in God's ways after we've been corrected. God uses it to develop our character, to to develop our our, our desire to please him, to, to walk in his ways, to make us more like Jesus. So the Bible shows us God's road, shows us everything he wants us to feel and think and say and desire and do. It shows us when we've driven off into the ditch morally or spiritually. It shows us how to get back on God's road and shows us how to stay on God's road. Whether it's instruction, conviction, correction, or further instruction throughout life, the Bible was given to God's people for all of those things. So, You need the Bible. I need the Bible. The Bible is absolutely necessary. It is necessary for salvation. We've seen that. It is necessary for growth after salvation. We've seen that. And without it, there is no saving message from God on this planet. No hope of revival. You need the Bible. Oh, and just in case you were still wondering, that puzzle piece that I talked about, that was eventually found. I know some of the uh, OCD who are watching this were like, you got to tell us what happened. Uh, My my son's uncle, Matt, he uh, found it. I think it ended up in another puzzle box because my son was tossing pieces before he really got into uh, making it. And I wonder if the piece that's missing in your Christian life isn't that you're not saved, but that you need revival. Maybe you need a hunger, a thirst, a passion to know and love God. Well, as you read and study and thirst for the word of God, what happens when you do that is you get the God of the word. And from him, you receive blessing and knowledge and wisdom and growth and change and help and joy and even more passion for him. That's the interesting thing about God. Is that the more you hunger and thirst for him, the more you're satisfied in him, but the more you want more. He is the delight that never satisfies as it deeply, as he deeply satisfies He's like the food that's so good, it satisfies your hunger, but you don't want to stop eating because it's just so good. You will find this out as he revives you primarily through his word. And we're going to see more about that next week. So let's pray. God, none of this matters. None of this makes sense. None of this will have any influence at all on our lives personally if it weren't for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. This word is his marching orders as the king of kings and lord of lords to his subjects, his people. It is this word that that gives eternal life. It is this word that you use to grow us and change us. You save us because of Christ. You change us into the image of Christ. Because at the end of the day, everything, everything is really about him. And so I pray that you would use this word. If we're watching right now and we need reviving, if our heart has grown cold or routine, if our heart has has developed a a, a layer of concrete over it because we're just going through the motions, I pray that you would burden us, that you would supernaturally burden us to know you more, to press in to know you, to seek you, whether that's fasting, whether that's prayer, whatever that is, however that's gonna work out in our lives, God, I pray for anybody who's experiencing that deadness and that needs revival that you would do that. And Father, as I, as I from my extremely limited perspective, survey the church, at least in America, God, we need revival on a massive scale. We need repentance we need you. We need you desperately. We can tell that we need it because there's so much fighting. There's so much bickering. There's so much battling going on and not against false teachers or pretending to be Christians, but against, against brothers and sisters. God, when the, when the tide is out every Little fish thinks it has the ocean, but when the tide is high, we're all together. May the tide of your truth, may the tide of your spirit, may the tide of love for you fill your church in these dark days. That's what you did in the Old Testament. You did it multiple times, especially in the book of Chronicles, we see that. As things got darker and darker, you revived your people You've done it in history. I pray you would do it again for the glory of your name.